Welcome to GRE Snacks, snackable episodes about the GRE exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and Achievable has an affordable GRE course that includes memory-based adaptive learning technology that gets you better results in less time. You can try it for free at achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast will get you 10% off at checkout. Now, let's get started. Today, we have Candy Lee LaBelle from Laval Admissions here to talk about MBA admissions. And Candy, I'd love if you could just introduce yourself and a little bit about your firm. Oh, Tyler, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here uh, and to talk to Achievable and about GRE and admissions and all that. Uh, my name is Candy Lee LaBall of LaBall Admissions. So uh, I do, I've been working in MBA admissions consulting for about 16 years. Um, and I like to say that my mission is to take the mystery and the misery out of MBA uh, application process because it is mysterious. It shouldn't be, but it is very mysterious. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's often very, very miserable. So what I try to do is get rid of both those things and make it an easier process for everyone involved. Um, so I've been, like I said, I've been doing this about 16 years, probably have helped at this point 600, 700 people uh, to go to schools from you know whatever you can imagine, Harvard and Stanford to ESA in Barcelona, INSEAD in France, Kellogg, Columbia, uh, IMD in Switzerland, you name it. I've worked with clients that are that are now studying there, um, and I love it. You know, I don't. I definitely do it because it's you know it's a great it's a great job. It's a great thing to do. But the best thing for me is when my clients call me and they're crying and they're like, "Oh my God, I got accepted!" And we have this big party, and it's it's just really wonderful because <laughs> it, it really can change their lives. So I'm happy to do it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And today, I think um, you're a great person to ask about our topic here, which is what are the biggest myths in the MBA application process and, and why we should uh, understand that they're myths and understand that you can overcome these different things, right? Um, so yeah, if you want to take it from the top, what do you think is the biggest and first myth here? Oh my goodness. There are, there are so many, I hear them all the time and I don't know what would be the biggest one because just, I guess it depends on the day I'm talking to someone. Um but what do I think? So, you know, applying to an MBA, you have to uh, choose the school you want to apply to. And then, of course, you have to write a series of essays and get in. And so, and you know, mm -hmm. of course, there's the test. You can take the GRE or you can take the other tests that are, are, are out there. Um, and you look good. You sound great. You did all the things you have to do. But then you see your cousin's girlfriend's next door neighbor and they got into Harvard or they got into Stanford and they wrote X, Y, and Z in their essay. And so this is kind of this belief that there's a formula that you have to write mm -hmm. this certain thing in order to get in. And if I say this certain thing, I'm going to get in. And I think that's one of the biggest myths because um, if that were the case, everyone in the MBA program would be exactly the same. You know, everyone would have the right. same, you know, the same profile, the same dreams you know, I'm going to change the world and make finance, you know, accessible for everybody. But but that's not how you get in. You get in by being yourself. That's the the number one way right. to get in. Well, and, and, you know, it's like this expectation. Oh, I my friend got into Stanford, but he had this like, you know, tragic life story or he like started a nonprofit that like saved the lives of a thousand blue whales or whatever it is. Right. Like <laughs> and there has to be something super dramatic and unique that is like the reason why yeah. they got in that in order to be a good essay. That's definitely, that's another myth. I would say that um, you can't get into certain schools if you don't have some sort of tragedy 
you know, you were orphaned as a child and you lost your, your arm to some disease and then you were kicked out of your home and they got fired, whatever happened to you. Uh, of course, it's not true. Um, you don't need to have a life. If you do, that's fine. But even if you do, that doesn't mean you're going to get in. It's all about how you in, how that tragic life story has impacted you, how you become a person as a result of it, how you interact with the world as a result of it. So the most important thing with your stories and your essays is to be true to yourself. And this is where a lot of my clients um, are surprised. But one of my favorite quotes that I share with them comes from Dr. Seuss. And he says, today you are you that is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. And that's how you get into MBA, <laughs> by being you. Because there's going to be a ton of people who went to an Ivy League school and who studied um, you know, mechanical engineering and graduated at the top of the class. And they were the president of this and the captain of the football team. And they work at McKinsey and they've done all those things. That's kind of the basic profile for, for applying. But they're not you. So you have to look what makes you different. And whether that's uh, a philosophy you have, a childhood experience you have, um, a way you believe in things, a hobby you have. So that's the really the most important. I think mm -hmm. that's what people find very, very intimidating. Like when they see that their cousins, you know, sisters, whatever got in with some random story, they feel like, oh no, my story is not good enough. And that's actually not true. The story probably is good enough. They just need to be brave enough to tell it. Right. Well, or also just like you need to be telling your story in not trying to tell a story that you think the admissions officer will like, right? Mm -hmm. I think that they can probably figure that out. Well, I mean, <laughs> yes and no. You know, because at the same time, you have to understand what admissions cares about. And, and, and hopefully the story that you're telling resonates with what they care about. What, I mean, what do most admissions people care about or most admissions team who are trying to let people into an MBA? They want to let people who are potential leaders. They want to let people in who... Um, can have an impact, who are ready to take initiative, the kind of people that raise their hand and and do things and make life happen. They don't wait for things to happen. So hopefully within your story, there's some elements of that. There's some spark of why you, know, why you are that way because of what you've done to. It's just not like, oh, I had this horrible tragedy and you know that's why I'm working at the corner grocery store and I'm not doing much with my life because of this tragedy. Can you let me in? It's like, no, right. <laughs> it's not the tragedy. It's what you do after um, that hopefully resonates with what the admissions team cares about. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so what's another myth that you see a lot? I see a lot of myths around the statistics. So GPA or test score. So for example, GPA is a good one. I see a lot of people that think like, oh no, my GPA is too low. I have a 2.8 and I, you know I'll never get in. And, right. and, and so they're already going in with this failure mentality or they don't apply to certain schools because like, oh, no, 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 I saw the statistics. Everyone who went there has a 3.9 or higher. And it's like, that's also, it's a myth because your GPA is not the entire picture, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's two parts. You can look at the GPA in and of itself. Why is the GPA low? Did you start off university at 17 years old and have no idea? First time you're living on your own, first time you're doing all this stuff, you were overwhelmed by the freedom and the independence. So you're like, so you didn't study enough and maybe your grades were low at the beginning, but then you got your stuff together and you went up. That can be explained. Maybe your GPA is low because something came up. Maybe you had to work part-time or full-time. Maybe you had to care for a parent or take care of a sister. Maybe you were sick. I mean, there's always you always got to think whatever your GPA is, there's a context that it can be put into. In addition, if you're international, and this I work with a lot of international applicants, 
they try to translate their GPA into a 4.0 system. So imagine I, I live in Spain and a lot of uh, students here have gone to engineering school in Spain and that's graded on a zero to 10 point scale. Well, engineering school in Spain is famous for being incredibly difficult. Failing is not common. Most people fail two, three classes a year and they have to repeat. And so they might end up with an 8.5 or a 7.9. If you know the Spanish system in engineering, that's amazing. That's a great score. But if you translate it into this American system, it'll be like a 1.2. So you have to remember that admissions understands the country uh, where you study. They understand the university that you study. They understand the grading system. So if you come to them with a 7.8 in engineering from a Spanish university, that's amazing. So you also have to remember that's other another myth that you have to forget about. Um mm-hmm. But then, you know, so that's one side of it. You have to evaluate the GPA in context of what was happening. On the other hand, if it truly is a low GPA, maybe you were overwhelmed and partying a little bit too much, who knows, you got to compensate for it in another way. And that's usually with your test score or with your work or what you've done in your career. So you can always compensate for a low GPA uh, by getting a high test score, for example. Right. Well, and I think um, particularly with MBA admissions, there's the the opportunity to build a resume, right? Like, like there are when you're applying to other graduate programs, the average time people are spending out of school is less than one year. Mm-hmm. But I think with MBA, the average time is more like three to six. So right. that's three to six years to do something else that will probably be the cornerstone of your application and your GPA won't really be that relevant to it. Absolutely correct. Your your career will have a lot of um, impact on your MBA application. And there are certain companies that you, maybe you work at a McKinsey or a Bain or a Goldman Sachs, you saw these blue chip companies. Well, you don't get hired there if you're not exceptional and you don't survive there if you're not doing good in your career. So that kind of also helps outweigh, maybe you didn't do great in the GPA, but look what you've done in your career. Or maybe you work at a family company or maybe you work at a communication company in your country and you've had impact. You've, you've, you've made deals. You've saved money. You've increased sales. You've done all these sorts of things, led teams. All of that will help you know, erase that GPA. That GPA is something in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's plenty of people in, in the history of the world that didn't really care that much about school but are – you know, really focused on or really care about um, work business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they like, I think it was like Warren Buffett had got straight C's in college or some, some famous person like that. And look at him um, now. <laughs> and look at him now. So it doesn't just have to be uh, your mm-hmm. GPA. Mm-hmm. So what are some other myths? Like maybe, um, like I'd love to talk about recommendation letters. I feel like that's one that, that comes up a lot. Uh, that you know, so right uh, at the beginning of the application season, which is usually in March, April, May, people are preparing to apply in, in round one, which is in September. So they're thinking about recommenders. So it's the time everyone's asking. And, you know, 16 years in and hundreds and hundreds of applicants. And every year I have, hear the same thing. Well, I'm going to get a recommendation from my CEO. And I say, oh, that's great. How often do you work together? Well, you know, I met him at the company dinner and he really liked my profile. So, you know, I know he'll do it. I'm like, but did you see the questions on the, on the recommendation letter? They ask like, what are your strengths? Can he talk about your strengths? Well, you know, he can, he, um, and suddenly the conversation breaks down from there because he can't. So the idea of this, there's this persistent, persistent, persistent myth that you need to choose the CEO, the director, the vice, these super, super high level profiles, 
when the reality is the total different. In fact, if you go, if you're applying, and I think Harvard's a wonderful example, if you go to the Harvard Business School application, you go into the section about recommenders, it specifically says, like, quote, unquote, we do not care about the rank of your recommender. We want you to choose someone who knows you well. And by the way, you don't have to choose an alumni because that's another myth. Well, if I'm applying to Harvard, I need a Harvard alumni to write my letter. And it's just, it's, right. just, it's just not, you need the person. I like to tell my clients, like, who is there, you know, at three o'clock in the morning when everything's gone to hell, like the whole system is broken down. You got a client presentation in the morning. Who's there watching you? Who's with you in the trenches? That is the person to be your recommender because that's the person who knows you best. Yeah, usually it's your direct manager, right? That's mm -hmm. the person who knows you best in an authoritative context. Yep, um, absolutely. Would you recommend people? Would you recommend that people get like a recommendation from a peer, like someone on the same level as you, or would you say manager is a lot better? I, that always. So, who you choose as a recommender also depends on the context. If you have a very typical pre MBA job where you have some supervisors you're expected to choose your supervisors, right? Your, your direct supervisor. However, not everyone has a typical job or not everyone works in a case where they can choose a direct supervisor. So what the, what the schools say is, if you cannot choose a direct supervisor, that's okay. Tell us why and tell us who you did choose. So if you're going to choose a peer, hopefully it's a peer who's a little bit older than you, maybe been in the company a little bit longer, maybe someone who's giving you advice because again, another way to think about the recommendation, uh, the recommender choice is looking at the questions. The second question that most schools ask is, describe a time you gave the applicant feedback and what did they do? So if your peer has never given you feedback, that will be a problem. So if you have mm -hmm. to ask a peer because you can't ask someone else, just make it someone short, someone that you've gone to for advice, someone that kind of supports you in your career, a mentor-like figure, for example. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I, I love this example because it reminds me of another conversation I had with somebody who was an admissions officer, and they once got a letter from Al Gore, like while Al Gore was vice president. And it was just like, hi, I'm Al Gore, and I recommend this person. And that was like the whole thing. It was like two sentences. Uh -huh. And it was an awful letter. It did not help at all. It did right? not help, yeah. And it's just, like, it's just like the quintessential example of like, it doesn't. it's not about who the letter is from. It's about what, now had Al Gore said, I met this person when she was an intern in my department and she went above and by and I will never forget the you know that she did this thing that no one was expecting and she made this difference and I'm so happy to see her career that would be that would that would help but just like I'm Al Gore and I support this <laughs> candidate is not going to make a difference. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So what's another myth? Um yeah, I feel like that we've got some good ones left. So letter, here. yeah, so letter recommendations are just fun. There's so many myths around there. Um, another one is round one versus round two versus round three. So a lot of applicants. Um, so if you if you know how MBA admissions works, it's done in what's called rounds. So it opens up. Round one is usually in September. So everyone has to apply by September and admissions looks at the application and then they make a decision or you can apply round two, which is in January, or you can apply round four, which is in usually in March. A couple of schools have a later round, right? And I often get that same, that same comment like, well, if I don't apply in round one, I'm out. I need to apply in round one. And that's also not true. You know, round one, round two exists for a reason. <laughs> they have not filled up the class in round one. If you're ready at round one, if you have your recommenders on board, you have a super solid test score, uh, your essays are developed, you have everything go, yeah, great, go for round one. 
But don't apply for round one if those things aren't ready. It, you, you're better off waiting right. until round two for sure. Um, so there's really there's really no difference com- competition wise, which is what people think. The only difference is that if you're trying to, especially if you're applying from abroad to to go, if you're in America and you want to go to school in London, or you're in India and you want to go to school in the U.S., if you apply in round two, you don't have a decision in Mar- until March. Programs open up in August. It might make it a little tight on your on your transition, on your move abroad, on your visa. But that's really the only difference, and that can be mediated. So, yeah, it's it's a solvable problem, right? And and I agree, like you said, it's it's that um, you know round one is the busiest round. It's a round that the most people get accepted in. I wonder if the acceptance rate differs between rounds. Do you know? No, I don't know that. I think that, and uh, there's not tons of data or info, you know or information about that. I'm sure the schools have it internally. Of course they have it internally. Um, But yeah, I I know that round two exists and round three exists because the class is not full. That's another myth that if I apply in round three, I'll never get in. And that's another total myth. There would not be a round three if there were not spots open, right? Right. Um, However, that doesn't mean everyone is right for round three. If you're a very, very typical profile, so you're a male engineer working and consulting, your hobby is soccer, probably round three is a death death toll. You're not going to make it in because that's kind of the Mm -hmm. biggest pool of applicants. But if you're in any way unique, if you're in any way from a different, um, uh, an underrepresented application pool, a different profile, a family company, round three can be amazing for you. Why not go for it? Yeah. Nice. No, I like that one. That's a good one. And then, yeah, I also think you were just talking a little bit about backgrounds there. You know, I feel like a big myth in the business world is basically that you needed to go to, you know, a top 20 undergrad, like business undergrad program, and then go straight into some big corporate job that's prestigious, whether that's, you know, Microsoft or McKinsey or Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs, and then you parlay that into a top business school. Do you feel like that is a myth also, or do you like, is there some credence to that one? I mean, well, I think there's some credence to every myth for sure. Um, and it's very common. Maybe if it's you, easier, but you yeah, maybe it's, to. maybe it's easier. If you've gone, if you, you, there's, there's definitely a feeder process, you know, there's, you go to a certain university, you major in business or engineering or finance, you go join these, these companies, like you mentioned, Microsoft or Amazon or, 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 or Google or, and then you switch over to it. So that's, that's very common, but that's the problem. It is common. That's the bulk of the people. So first of all, these people who are all have that profile, who are amazing, dynamic, fantastic people, and I'd love if my children would grow up to be these type of people, they're competing against themselves. So they do have a lot of competition in a lot of ways, which gets back to the Dr. Seuss quote about being yourself, because that's the only way they can compete with each other. But then you've got all these other people who studied English literature, who worked in journalism, who done nonprofit, who've worked as teachers, they are not necessarily sort of like, you know, the typical path, but they're going to bring diversity to the program. And that's the bottom line. Every mm-hmm. admissions team is trying to build a diverse program because, you know, if you build an if you build a classroom of 500 people who all have the same background, it's not very interesting. You know, what it's an echo chamber. So they need to have people who are coming from all these different backgrounds, different countries, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And different careers. So if you've got this different profile, in a, in some ways, it can you can parlay it into an advantage. Um, and in mm-hmm. fact, a couple of years ago, I, I attend a lot of conferences. Well, I actually 
as part of the AGAC group, which is the a group that I don't even know what AGAC stands for. I'll have to come back a to great, that. A great amount. A great <laughs> amount. The association, of, uh, association, kind of. yeah, association of international graduate admissions consultants. So I've been a member of them for about fifteen years, uh, and we do these conferences at you know we go to. Berkeley or we go to Kellogg. And I remember at one conference, we had the admissions director of Stanford. She's she's just left her position. And uh, one of the things they we asked these questions. So who, what kind of application applicants do you want to say more of? And everyone's giving their speech. And she just says, artists, one word, didn't say anything else. She's like, I want more artists because these artists are, are counting themselves out. They're like, I am an artist. I can never be an MBA. So they're just like cutting mm-hmm. themselves out of the process without even trying. So if you're an artist, right. apply to Stanford. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also just um, there, I think there's also sort of different personalities for different institutions, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me too much that the Stanford person wants more artists. I think Stanford's reputation is that they're a little bit more iconoclastic with their admission selections versus, mm-hmm. I don't know, Harvard, where at least what I've been told, and I don't know if it's true, but uh, I've been told that the, it, Harvard's very classic, you know, they want the finance background and maybe the legacy student or maybe like, you know, some sort of prestige associated with them, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. So it's just every, every organization is different yeah. too. I mean, not about Harvard, not maybe that's part of it, but you have to remember Harvard has 900 people in their classroom. So yes, they're going to have more of the classic profiles, more of the, you know, more of that Stanford has, uh, I think it's just under 400 so yes, it's going to be more right. diverse, you know. That so those things all have to be taken into context with, with so many different things. But um, but I th- I would I would venture to say that most admissions teams at most schools love to have the, the diverse, quirky person. Now that diverse quirky person needs to have, leadership potential, impact, test scores, stats, intellect. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just be like, hey, I'm super quirky and I made this. I'm an artist. Let me in. It's like you still have to have a lot of the things they're looking for. Uh, in terms of intellectual ability, because an MBA uh, program is difficult. It is extremely, extremely challenging uh, quantitatively, analytically, uh, in the amount of work you have to do. I often get clients who are like, oh, you know, my investment banking clients are like, oh, you know, I can't wait to take a break in the MBA. And I'm like, ha, <laughs> like you're going to work even more in the MBA. What are you talking about? There's no break. Take a break after. But um so they're looking for people who can handle all that as well, which is why you get the test scores and all that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that all makes sense. I, I'm curious. And what are what are um, some other myths that we could talk about today? Uh, 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 um, good question. Uh, there's so many of them. Oh, OK. Here's a good myth, especially that because I work abroad, I live abroad and I work 90 percent of my clients are international. They'll often. Um, and schools, is, the schools is part of the school's problem. They want, they say, get to know us. You know, if you're going to apply here, you need to know us. Attend our webinars, talk to our students. And that is true. You have to do that. Um, if you apply to NYU Stern, for example, or Ross or um, Duke, you know, that's another good example, and you haven't researched the culture, you're not going to get past admissions because they're going to be like, why are you applying here? This doesn't make sense to us. You need to attend webinars. You need to talk to students. You need to reach out. And it is nice if you visit campus. Campus visits are wonderful. But something I hear a lot that breaks my heart is people who who are afraid because they can't make the campus visit. 
because they live mm-hmm. in Turkey or they live in Japan or they're supporting their mother or they just don't have the money. And so they feel like, oh, I can't visit. So, oh, no, I can't get in. On the other hand, I have a lot of people who have a lot of money and a lot of free time. And they're like, I'm going to go do a massive tour of all the business schools and spend a week in each city. And I know that's going to advance my chances. And it's like, no, it's not. Why should admissions give you a benefit because you have the money to come here and make this guy in in Gabon suffer because he doesn't have the money to come here? And so you need to learn to know the pro. You need to get to know the program. Visiting is great, but don't make the mistake that it's going to some kind of way turn a, a switch for you. You know, unless right. unless you happen to like catch a cab to the airport with the admissions director and the cab breaks down and you guys end up on the side of the road and have this amazing bonding experience. Then maybe you got an extra point. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, that that, that can help, but that won't save you anyway. So. <laughs> no, but it, do, it does make me sad. The people that either feel like they have to take a loan to go visit or they just can't. And they're they're so worried about it. Right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm curious, then, are there any other myths you want to cover here before we wrap up? Mm, I mean, we can talk about test scores. You're a GRE person, so you want to talk about those? Sure. <laughs> so there's, yeah. lots of, there's lots of myths around the test, right? GRE or GMAT, or now there's this executive assessment. Um, and, you know, there's averages at these schools. And what we call it, we call it the 80th, 80th percentile. So 80% of the students in this class are between the score and the score. And so the idea is that you need to be in that score. That's the ideal situation. Um, right. Sometimes people have a score that's too low, like very low, like way below that. And they think, well, it's okay. I've got my profile is good enough. I've got all these things. I have this great admission. I've got this great letter recommendation. I've done these great things at the job. Uh, I can get over this low GMAT. And for the most part, it doesn't work. You know, um, the schools like to talk about the holistic side of it and all this and all that. But the bottom line, if, you're, if your test score is too low, you're going to have a heck of a time uh, getting past admissions or getting past the gatekeepers. And But they also like to tout, oh, we have, we have students in our class with a 550 GMAT or you know, what's a low GRE number? 302 yeah okay or 302 in the 20s or like a yeah yeah it goes it goes up to it goes up to um 36 i believe yeah so so they might have so the the schools are often saying we've got students in with such a low score but what they don't say is what else that applicant brought to the table um so having a low score is in my opinion one of the worst things you can do for your profile it's you know you need to put the effort in, the time in, the money to get that score up. Because I think a high score, and on the other hand, a high score won't necessarily turn the table. If you have the top GRE score, the top GMAT score, and your profile still ain't great, you know, you're probably still not going to be able to get through it. you got to have a combination. But I think there's um, too much focus on like, oh, it's so holistic. Don't worry about your score. And then the reality is that admissions ends up rejecting a person and then coming around a couple months later and saying, well, had you had a high, if you could bring up the score, we'd consider you. And I'm like, dude, you told them the score didn't matter. And now after the fact, you're telling them they need to bring it up. It makes me crazy. Well, I mean, I, I, so I've done this podcast um, with people that have worked in admissions offices. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them have actual cutoffs. Like they never admit it. Like no, no one ever wants to say that they have cutoffs because that's not kosher mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in today's world. But it is totally true, and it's something that, like, at the very least, if you're below the cutoff, that is a disadvantage, right? Even if they're yeah. not outright disqualifying you immediately, 
which some of them still do. Yeah. Um, it's not good. And I mean, and you might say, oh, where's the cutoff? Well, generally speaking, um, I would say at a minimum, I'd want to be above the 25th percentile GRE or GMAT mm -hmm. score for that college, right? So you don't want to be in the bottom quartile. <laughs> no, lower, no. <laughs> right? And then preferably yeah. you're at least above average. The idea, and and just like for context for listeners, um, you know, we live in a you know, a capitalist society with with a U.S. news ranking world report, right? And that does have a big bearing on how yeah. these admissions officers act, because at yeah. the end of the day. You know, if your school is top 10 in the U.S. news report, you get more applicants, which means you're more desirable, which means mm -hmm. everyone at the school feels great, which means you get a raise, right? Like, it's yep. all this, it's all part of the game. And mm -hmm. so one of the big things about it is, like, what are the average GRE and GMAT scores? And yeah. they don't want to admit people that are going to bring that average down. Yeah. Um, well, they they do behind so, yeah. they do they do it enough behind the scenes that those of us like myself who've been doing this 16 years, I know what's happening. Um, but, but what what is bothersome is they don't say that to the applicants. Yeah, go ahead, apply. Your profile's so great. Yeah, it's holistic. Don't worry about it. And you're looking at it as an admissions consultant, going, "Oh my god," um, you know. And you're trying to help people mediate their what they're doing, and it's, it becomes very difficult. But yeah, the, the the test scores in my mind have more weight than anyone will really admit. So I think you need to have a higher score than you think you do, and especially if you're from an overrepresented pool. So. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's all very good advice. Well, great. Thank you so much. This has been GRE Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Candy Lee Labal from Labal Admissions. And Achievable has a great online GRE course to raise that test score. You can try it for free by going to achievable.me. And if you like it, be sure to use the code podcast to save 10%.